The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data, Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss how ABM should fit into your marketing strategy. Joining us is John Miller, who's the Chief Product Officer at DemandBased, which is the leader in account-based marketing and an indispensable part of the B2B tech stack. DemandBased offers the only end-to-end ABM platform that helps B2B marketers identify, win, and grow the accounts that matter the most. And today, John and I are going to discuss marketing's role in shaping your overall corporate strategy. All right. On with my conversation with John Miller, the Chief Product Officer at DemandBase. John, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you very much. Very excited to have you as our guest. I uh, was hustling to get prepared for this interview, running back and forth between you know daily life and being a podcast host. And all of a sudden, I looked down to figure out who my next guest is. And it turns out it's one of the co-founders of Marketo. You've had quite a distinguished career in the MarTech space. Just to get started, let's talk a little bit about your background. You've been doing this for a while. Give us a a quick version of your resume. Yeah. So some people are usually surprised to hear that I studied physics for my undergrad. I did my summer work doing uh, fusion research at Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And I actually got into MIT for a PhD program. But I wanted to kind of give this whole business world a try and deferred MIT for a year and got a job doing management consulting. But I think because of my tech background or my, my quant background, I ended up working on much more quantitative projects, which led me to a boutique consulting firm called Exchange Partners. So now Exchange Partners had realized that they had all this great consulting they were doing, but that people couldn't implement the strategies without technology and actually acquired an old mainframe campaign management system that they eventually spun out and launched as a kind of called Exchange. And this is like mid-90s. So they were quite successful, actually had an IPO. And ultimately probably became the leading MarTech company of the mid-90s. Back before it was cool, before we had our own industry. Yeah, exactly. So then I left and I went to get my MBA from Stanford. And when I was graduating, I managed to somehow convince a company called Epiphany to give me a job as one of their first product managers. And even though I had no tech experience, they saw Exchange as their biggest competitor. And the fact I had a loose connection to that company was enough to get me the job. And Epiphany probably went on to be the biggest marketing technology provider of the internet bubble. Huge IPO. At one point, it had an $8 billion valuation. And then obviously, things went down kind of the other side. 
So we finally sold Epiphany in 2005. So you're just doing this for fun at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually learned some good lessons about uh, sell your stock when you can and don't hang on to it, actually. Right. (laughs) So no, I'm still working on purpose. So anyway, after we sold Epiphany, I was there for a little over seven years. That's when Phil Fernandez and I started talking about Marketo. He had been the president and chief operating officer of Epiphany. And we realized that we shared a common vision of what was needed. We wanted to deliver the kind of powerful functionality Epiphany had, but we wanted to make it much more accessible to marketers who didn't have $500,000 budgets to buy traditional enterprise on-premise software. And in 2005, SaaS was just becoming mainstream enough that we realized we could use software as a service. So what it let us do is it let us deliver powerful marketing software that marketers could buy out of their operating budgets, the same way they buy trade shows and Google AdWords. That was the idea behind Marketo. It was a business model idea. It's interesting. You've gone from a non-traditional marketing background, then you get into technology. You kind of stumbled into MarTech and you've been in this industry as it develops. It's interesting to me that you went from the email marketing targeting related company like Marketo, getting the right message to the right person at the right time, onto ABM. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. First and foremost, how do you think of what ABM is? And why did you make that leap from what is ostensibly the world's biggest email marketing platform into something that some people might say is a souped up version of email marketing and ABM? First of all, I'd say the common theme through all of these companies has been, I would say, a pursuit of the vision of the one-to-one future. And just the vision that more data and better technology will enable us to interact with our customers and our prospects in much more intelligent and targeted ways. I've been following that vision since kind of that first job in consulting kind of out of high school. And the thing about ABM that's really interesting is it takes the promise of being more relevant and more personalized to the next level. It basically says you're going to focus your efforts onto a smaller set of accounts and therefore truly get to the goal of one-to-one. So that's the thing that confuses me about ABM in general. You know, I think of marketing, you know, the best marketers have the best targeting, right? They have the best relevance and they can deliver the best creative at the right time. And it seems like ABM is essentially another packaging of really good targeting. And I understand that the principle behind it is you're going to focus on fewer targeted, larger accounts. How does ABM work and why is it any different than just great targeting? Well, it's because you can't deliver that level of great targeting to the masses. The technology doesn't exist to be completely bespoke and custom to millions or even thousands of companies and people. And we haven't defined ABM yet, so we may be ahead of ourselves. And also that there's different tiers of ABM. Let's do it. Give me the definition of ABM then. I mean, I think a good definition of ABM is that it's a go-to-market strategy that coordinates personalized marketing and sales efforts to land and expand high-value accounts. And I think the important words in that definition are, first of all, strategy. It's not a campaign. It's a really, it's a way of doing business. It's about marketing and sales efforts. So that's another nuance from the traditional marketing, which we should explore. But it's as much about what sales does as what marketing does. And it's about landing and expanding. So it's as much about taking existing relationships and growing them as about generating kind of net new. So I think those are all interesting aspects of it. But the other word of that definition that's important is the personalized piece. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you do get into the tiers and styles of ABM. 
So I think it's better to think of this as a spectrum than it is a black and white. So at one end of the spectrum, we might have true classic strategic ABM. You know, this is your one-to-one marketing where each touch with that account is completely bespoke and completely customized. Mm-hmm. CSE, which I forget what they rebranded themselves, but you know, they do like $30 million deals. They would literally hire a branding agency to come up with the branding and creatives for each account. That's how bespoke they were being because that $30 million deal is worth it. Yeah. And their target market is, you know, John Donahoe from Nike. They're going after the elite sized companies in their campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say this style is really appropriate for $2 million deals and up. You know, you don't send them a white paper, you send them their white paper that you wrote for them. Right. <laughs> and again, so you obviously can't do that for, for lots of accounts. The median number of accounts that a company has of that style is 14. So the key thing that sticks out to me is the merger of sales and marketing. And that kind of dovetails nicely into how marketing is influencing corporate strategy. You mentioned that there's a spectrum that you're going from true, true ABM, where they're going after $2 million deals and above, all the way down to the opposite end. Walk me through the different segments in ABM. Yeah, so we got sort of 2 million and above strategic ABM. I'd say let's go in order, sort of an order of magnitude lower to you know what people call scale ABM. This is probably appropriate for like the 250,000 to 2 million dollar deals. This is, you know, I think your kind of one to few approach that tends to sort of go very, very targeted within a micro cluster. So classically, that's industry specific. But you're not doing financial services, you're doing credit card payment processors. Like finding this cluster of, say, 20 accounts that you can sort of be very specific and very focused on their business issues. The median number of accounts that typically a company has of that style is only about 80. So you're, you're still counting them in the dozens. Let's go down one more. You get to um, what a lot of people will call programmatic ABM. This is your 50, 100... $150,000 deal. Yeah, kind of your B2B SaaS model. Enterprise B2B, B2B SaaS Higher end of B2B SaaS. Mm-hmm. It's where a lot of ABM programs actually live. And it's where we do see a lot more technology at play to kind of provide scale up into the hundreds of accounts. You know, the median there turns out to be 725 of this kind of account. And I think what distinguishes the programmatic stage then from my bottom tier, which I'm just going to call targeted demand gen. Mm-hmm. So that's 50K and down deals. It's targeted demand gen because you're still trying to put your dollars against specific accounts. The difference though is in this programmatic layer, you're still trying to bring at least some level of personalization to the table. A simple example of that one is you might send them a white paper, but you've actually taken the time to stick their logo on the cover of it. Right. It's worth doing a little bit of personalization. So essentially that is rebranding or repackaging content as opposed to you get farther up the scale to the point where you're creating specific content for your customers. Yeah. At the very top, it's specific to the account. Second tier was specific to the micro segment. The third is, it might be generic or broad industry, but you're still going to like, you throw their name on it. Mm -hmm. And then the bottom one is more just generic. You type their name on the front page. (laughs) So John, we've talked a little bit about the different segments within ABM marketing and how there's deal size and you know number of customers, how many touch points or how much you want to target and customize your marketing efforts. 
And there's a strategic decision to be had there. So as you're developing your go-to-market strategy, how do you figure out how broadly you should be reaching? Should you be programmatic? Should you be focusing on scales? Are you really just trying to close the eight biggest customers in your industry? A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex, ready to take your team from I think to I know. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. How can your marketing dictate who your customers should be and what your strategy is? I think this is an intersection between the size of the deals you tend to sell and the resources that you have available. Let's say you are one of these businesses that have accounts that could be worth three, four million dollars. And obviously not all your accounts. But oftentimes what will happen is there might be 20 accounts that could be worth that much. Right. But when you look at your resources and your budget, you realize I only can support doing that level of relevance and personalization targeting for six of them this year. And first of all, that's okay. And I think it's important to sort of understand that and be realistic about it and say the other 14, I'm going to treat them one tier down. Not because I actually think they're worth less. It's just I can only kind of focus on so many. So I think what marketing can do, first of all, is help to define literally the entitlements. What does it mean for us to have, say, an account as a tier one? What does it mean for us to say an account as tier two? And getting marketing and sales to agree on those definitions and those entitlements, those SLAs. And then once you have those, that tells you the number of accounts that you can support at each tier. And then that ultimately takes you into an account selection process. Mm -hmm. Okay, we get six tier ones, we get 70 tier twos, we're going to have 500 tier threes, and then we're going to have 3000 tier fours or whatever it is. Ultimately, I think it's best if the sales team actually does the account selection. These are the six, these are the 50, because you really want them to be bought in to that account selection process. But marketing, I think, should guide the process with data and insights around, hey, here's what makes a good account. 
there's a point of differentiation here as well, where when you're picking who your customers or your prospects are going to be, that changes what your company is about and who it's for. You went through this process with Marketo. You inferred to this earlier where you were taking what was at one point an enterprise-grade software, and you were one of the founders of essentially the B2B SaaS movement, and started to move that functionality down market. So just walk me through the thought process there of saying, we've got this software that people are selling for millions of dollars. You know what we're going to do? We're going to sell it for tens of thousands of dollars, and we're going to get thousands of customers instead of a hundred. What was the mindset like there? Why did you decide to pick the segment you did? And obviously, this is kind of the pre-ABM stage, but how would that have played into your ABM strategies today? I've seen research that says there's no one price point that makes for better or more successful SaaS companies in particular than other price points. There are very successful, profitable SaaS companies that sell million-dollar deals and $100,000 deals and $10,000 deals. And then even like you get to like the survey monkeys and the one other world. It's interesting that you see success kind of at every price point. I think what distinguishes the successful ones from the less successful ones is really aligning the business and the go-to-market end-to-end to support that strategy. So tell me a little bit about how the story and the positioning of Marketo evolved. So you know, when we first launched Marketo, the very first product was actually a tool to help with your pay-per-click bid optimization and then driving those clicks to custom landing pages. And because we had sort of this vision of software that was easy to buy as your Google AdWords, we actually let people buy it that way. We let them come to the website, sign up for a free trial, type in a credit card, provision their own account, and get up and running. And we charge them as a percentage of their spend. So they didn't pay anything for the first 30 days. And then depending on what the amount was, you know, it would be like 5% of that or something. And we literally, we had customers who paid us 27 cents kind of in their first invoice. People who were like very small businesses who were dabbling. And we quickly realized that that didn't work. At least that wasn't working for us. It's going to take a long time to collect enough customers to make 27 cents per customer profitable. Yeah, exactly. So as we move towards the second version of Marketo, which is the marketing automation product, we raised it the minimum. So the point was like the minimum was now $1,000 a month. And we didn't let you do a self-service trial. We tried a little bit where people were like, all right, let them just log in and try. But marketing automation was new enough that people didn't know what to do. Right, so they log into an empty screen and sort of like somebody logging into Excel for the first time. And like, okay, I can do a lot of stuff, but like, I don't know what to do or where to start. I still feel that way sometimes. <laughs> so with Marketo, we realized, okay, this is something that needed to be sold. It needed to have an implementation person help you get up and running. And all those things implied a certain price point and a certain minimum. So again, if you're going to have a minimum of $1,000 a month, you're also going to minimum the kind of company size you can sell to. That's one where the sort of necessities of the market help to define which segment we should be serving. And then we align the rest of the business around that. On the flip side, we weren't ready to support the enterprise. We didn't have user-based security or the right permissioning functionality or SSO integration. Again, when we first launched, we didn't have workspaces to let a global company have different users from different regions working. We weren't internationalized. So there was also a high end to kind of how far we could go with the platform. So we go, okay, this is the segment we're serving. And it just kind of made sense. And then over time, like a lot of companies, as we added more functionality, 
we enable the ability to start to kind of move the top of that pyramid up over time. Yeah, it's interesting to me, you know, using Marketo as a template. And when we're talking about marketing and its role in corporate strategy, how there is such a blended approach between, as you're describing, hey, what your product was, your sales team, how big was it? Who can they actually reach to? Who can they sell? Your marketing efforts, who are you able to get in front of? Who can you attract with the type of products and services you have? As you think about how corporate strategy has evolved and you're putting together, you know, what your price and your package and everything that goes into your go-to-market strategy, do you think that the number of people who are in the room has changed, you know, as products like ABM have evolved? Are the marketers, are the chief revenue officers, are the VPs of sales being pulled into the room to start making the strategic decisions of what our company is going to be and who it's for? Well, I've always felt like those types of decisions kind of are, are best made by what Patrick Lencioni calls the first team, right? You know, you have you have a leadership team of the company, which includes CEO, the head of marketing, the head of sales, the head of product, the head of engineering, the head of finance. You define like the first team, the head of all the departments. And it's called that quote unquote first team because collectively they should be thinking about that as their first team as opposed to I'm the head of product, so my team is product. So the question is, what role does the marketing department play on that first team? So let me ask you, what's the role that marketing plays on that team? I believe the CMO is a first team uh, level position. That the CMO should be a direct report to the CEO and be part of that kind of company leadership. And you know, there are certainly companies that make the opposite decision and have the CMO either report to a chief revenue officer or God forbid, a head of sales <laughs> or something like that. And I think any CMO worth their salt should definitely worry about that kind of work structure. Because by definition, you want marketing, which is the group that typically has the best view of the market and the best view of where things are going, not where things are today. The most forward looking. Yeah. You want that to be part of the top leadership team. Okay. Last question for you today. As you start to think about demand base and how ABM has evolved, what role does technology play in those strategy decisions? Are you starting to think about what technology you should be implementing and have access to as you're making your strategic decisions, as you're starting to figure out who your customers are? Or is the technology being decided on after you understand who you're going after? I mean, technology in every case should be an enabler of a strategy and not the strategy of itself. By definition, you should sort of say, this is how I want to go to market. This is what I want to do. Okay, what's going to enable me to do that better and more efficiently? And obviously, as much as a vendor, we like people who are like, oh, I just need to buy the software. Uh, you know, <laughs> I have an ABM initiative, so I need to buy the software first. As much as I like that, that doesn't always lead to a successful implementation. I've worked for some consulting clients like that. <laughs> so I think the one nuance, and this is where the best salespeople, I think, come into the equation is when you're coming up with your strategy, it's important to know what's possible. And a really good salesperson and a good marketing team is out in the marketplace helping their customers understand the what's possible. When they come up with their strategies, they can like, oh, okay. And it turns out I'm going to need this technology to enable it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Thinking about what's possible as you start thinking about your strategies. And obviously, we'd love for marketers to be in the room. All right. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to John Miller, Chief Product Officer at Demandbase for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, John and I are going to talk about digital versus the human of ABM. 
If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about John, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter. His handle is John Miller, J-O-N-M-I-L-L-E-R, or you could visit his company's website, which is demandbase.com. Just one more link in our show notes I'd like to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can also subscribe to our once a week newsletter. You can even send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is martechpod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or you can contact me directly. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day this year. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.